Welcome to Bottled Up on a mission to create conversations and make the mental health of men a top priority. You're joined by myself, Sunny, and Mayank, close friends from university who want to share the stories of everyday people on our platform. The reason? Because we are not alone. Before we kick this conversation off, thank you for tuning in and listening. If you haven't already, it would be awesome if you could rate, review, and follow our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your conversations. It makes a huge difference to our reach with these awesome guests and potentially life-saving conversations. And if you haven't just yet, it takes 20 to 30 seconds to leave us a review and would help us out massively. Thank you again, and buckle up for another great conversation. Well, today's guest, everyone, I don't think really needs uh, too much of an introduction, or in this case, actually a reintroduction. Actually, probably needs a bit of an introduction or else people won't know who we're talking about. We've got Tom Boyd uh, here with us on Bottled Up for the second time. You might know him as number one draft pick in the 2013 AFL draft, as well as the 2016 AFL Premiership player. But I can say with certainty and absolute privilege and gratitude that we've got the original and authentic Tom Boyd here with us today on this platform. So we don't have Tom Boyd, the footballer. We've got Tom Boyd. Thank you so much uh, for rejoining us at Bottled Up, mate. Well, I don't know how you can guarantee that you've got the authentic Tom Boyd, given that we're sitting on a virtual Zoom call and, you know, it is 2022. So it's wonderful to be back. And I feel like, you know, start this in the most, with the biggest lack of humility, you also missed out that I'm actually an author now. Oh, author. I, yes. uh, I yes. obviously wrote a book over the last couple of years, No It's a Hive. And what I like to tell people is, and, and, and everyone's going to tune out of this podcast now because I've, I've just gone down the wrong path. But um, what I do like to tell people is, I, unlike many of my you know colleagues who obviously played AFL and had far better careers than me, I actually wrote the thing myself. So it was, uh, it was quite an experience over the last couple of years. But you know, it is fantastic to be back uh, with you. And Sonny, we weren't together last time, but it's uh, it's good to be with both of you today. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> if you'd let me just sort of just finish up, Tommy, um, we would have I would have mentioned that you're an author, but since you've taken that, that's 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 fine. Um, <laughs> of course, it, it it hasn't really been radio silence. Sonny, you've obviously you obviously reached out to Tommy to try and get him on a second time. But since our conversation has been really helpful in sort of connecting us with a couple of guests, I mean, we've got Rosie Popper um, who came on, we released her episode, I think about two, three months back, I believe. And it was, yeah, it's been, and we've always been just receiving your support on LinkedIn as well. So thank you so much for, yeah, for, for coming back. And it's, uh, it's much appreciated. I guess, Sonny, I don't know if you want to ask the question, mate. Uh, we normally try to ask a question to sort of get the juices kind of flowing uh, or a bit of a thought provoking question, but Sonny, maybe you take it away and maybe you ask it. Yeah. There's going to, there's going to be plenty of questions on this episode, Tommy. And just, just a heads up, Mank has been talking so highly about your book over the last couple of days or even last week, week or week and a half. And I actually haven't read your book and that was an intentional design. So you get two different types of questions coming your way. Obviously me having not read the book coming from a different angle, but we'll get into those questions in a second. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to prepare. So that it was an interesting interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've been doing your homework on some of our past episodes, but a few things have changed since uh, October 2020. And, and we like to start these episodes with a bit of a creative question to get the juices flowing. And so right. the question that we have for you today, just as a little icebreaker, not one that you need to prepare for on this one, unfortunately. So which parallel universe version of yourself would you want to bump into and meet and, and why? Yeah, it's a better way of asking, I think, the question which everyone tends to ask me, which is, you know, if you had your chance to play football again and you went back to 18, would you have played professionally? My answer to that is I hate hypotheticals because, you know, things happen and you either land where you want to land in your life or you don't. And, you know, from a general perspective point of view, the good and the bad things that have happened in my life over the course of the 27 years that I've been alive, uh, 27 and some change now, have essentially created the human that I am today. But interestingly, I would like to understand perhaps a little bit about what trajectory my life would have gone on if I had gone down the path of, say, commerce or gone down mm -hmm. the path of joining in a big four accounting firm, which you two would know nothing about. <laughs> you know, when I actually came out of school, I went down the electrical engineering path as as a uh, sort of a an homage to, to my father, who was a, a sparky. He was quite successful as a commercial electrician. And what he essentially told me was, you know, we've got all these electrical engineers who work for us. Um, you know, they're really smart, bright kids, but they can't listen to the real life examples that apply to building the job. 
they can do the math. And most of the time, you know, his comments were, it's all just done by the computer anyway. So um, <laughs> you, you could do the math and then come in and actually build something because you can talk and do the sort of, I, I suppose, be the, the, the conduit between the theory and the reality. So it'd be really interesting to see yeah, where I would have ended up, I think, if football hadn't been the path that I've chosen. But again, to reference the point that I hate hypotheticals, <laughs> I, uh, I have no regrets about playing football. I have no bitterness or no ill will towards the people who lighted me or criticised me or, you know, all I do is try and hold on to the gratitude that I have with, um, with the wonderful relationships that I have and the experiences and financial opportunities that I've been granted along the way. This may be a, a bit of a, a different way of spinning the question. Would you do it again? Yes, I would do it again. It's a valid question. And the, thing, the reason why it's valid is because, you know, I think a lot of people look back at hard experiences. You know, I've spoke probably quite in depth previously about some of the many challenges that I faced during my, my career in particular with regards to sleep and anxiety and depression. And, um, you know, all of these things were part of the formative years of my life. And I think one of the things that you, people really miss out on when, when you look at an AFL player, you know, what do people see? They see this, you know, superhuman athlete. They see, you know, probably some version of, oh, they're a stuck-up, arrogant, overpaid, et cetera, et cetera, because that's the narrative that in Australia in particular, we sell about our, you know, celebrities to an extent, but definitely about our sports people. And I would say that the, you know, even the people who, you know, you had Rosie Popper on, who's obviously been to a couple of Olympic games and these people make 25 grand a year. They work every day on their craft. They train on and off the, the, uh, off the water. Or, and if you're an Olympian, you're, you're a swimmer or you're running, you get paid nothing pretty much for four years. And then for three weeks, every four years, you get the chance to basically make enough money to live, win the sponsorship win the race, whatever it is. And even then, those people who aren't shoved down the public's throat every single day, like footballers are, particularly in the sort of you know, southeastern seaboard more, more specifically, it, it, even in that scenario, we still find a way to criticise and critique and downright try and tear down some of our athletes. And it goes completely counterintuitively to the Australian culture of sport being an integral sort of component of who we are as people. And one of the very many, or probably the most powerful bridge that we've had over the course of the last hundred years in terms of bridging from let's say from a multicultural point of view or a shared sort of i don't know ethos point of view about performing and getting together as a team and the aussie mateship and all of that stuff that we tell ourselves the rhetoric that i think gets displayed over a long period of time and definitely was displayed against me is that we're all an entitled bunch of pricks basically mm. and when i look back now and i look at these kids playing football i'm like these kids are 18 like if the general public could stop and think about what they were doing at 18 years old 21 years old as i was when i was playing in front of you know 99,981 people winning a premiership under the most amount of scrutiny on you know the second biggest contract that had been offered in afl history i think if they could grasp the sort of humanity of the people that are playing it would make the experience of people's fans far different and to again reference the reason why i wrote the book the essential theme that i was trying to exhibit is if you're a young person and if you're a person more broadly i would say and you're going through life and you have doubts about yourself and you're not sure or you're uncertain or perhaps you're scared or, you know, trying to figure stuff out, you're not alone. You're the exact same feelings that every single young person has is the same feelings that I was going through, even though I looked like my life was perfect. So I just, I think the whole sort of way we describe and sort of envisage the people that, you know, basically entertain us once a week is completely off. And, you know, whilst there are certainly imperfections in the people that are on the big screen, it's something that I think that if we can change the sort of concept of who these people are, and they are people, I think it's going to be beneficial for everyone. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about this give you a bit of context for i've actually i've read the book and it's it's really really an incredible book and i was like somebody mentioned before you sort of I, I don't really read that much to be honest i'm more of an audiobook kind of person so when i was trying to look for nowhere to hide as an audiobook couldn't really find it but so i had to had to resort to my own voice in my head <laughs> i'm a bit of a slow reader so um, more than a few people have mentioned that yeah so. yeah i've really really enjoyed the book and one of the things and i think you kind of alluded to the point there one of the things that i really really enjoyed about your book is how relatable it was even though like your profession is so there's so much of a disconnect 
contact between both of our professions. I mean, obviously, like you said, I'm a consultant, I'm an accountant. You were an AFL footballer, but I, I found it so, I loved how you've used football as kind of the vehicle to kind of express your own message and express like the way that you were thinking. I even one thing I love about the book is how you've got italics and, and how you've sort of, you sort of show your own sort of mind at work in, in sort of different instances within the different instances or different events that happen in your footballing career. That's what I love about it. And one of the questions I, I, I did have when, as you were sort of writing the book, because I remember you said that you sort of started writing it during 2020 when you didn't have too much going on at the time. How, what was that experience like in terms of the reflection and looking back at your life and, and sort of putting it on paper? And, and can you describe to us what that journey was like and that introspection? Yeah. It was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't expecting that answer. <laughs> no, 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 no. It, 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 look, it was really, really, really interesting for me. As you said, I sort of started writing in 2020 and, you know, people said, oh, why, why did you write it or what spurred you on and how was the process? Because again, to reference my first, you know, slightly hubristic point, I did actually write this thing myself and I actually wrote the first iteration of it completely on my own. And one of the reasons was because, you know, I'd moved out of football in 2019, I'd retired. I was at peace with my decision. I was really comfortable that whilst I didn't know exactly what the complexion of my work life or life in general would look like, other than obviously still with being with my partner, Anna, that I, I knew that I wanted to work in the space of trying to be a positive influence in well-being, I suppose, but also sort of in this performance, well-being, mental health space. And I, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be an influencer. I, I really didn't like that. And, and I still don't like that concept. I feel like it's quite superficial at times. And I always was looking at it, okay, well, I can make an impact, let's say at a breadth level through social media. I can, you know, sort of make an impact on a depth level with a one-on-one -on -one conversation, but I'm not a psychologist, so I can't just go and sell my time and be a therapist to people with, you know, any sort of ethical guidelines. So one of the reasons why I went down the book path is that, you know, I got to 2020, I'd set myself up to be doing a lot of speaking work. I was in conversation about doing some more um, ambassadorial work. And again, speaking is probably the next tier down from social media. Ambassador work, probably the next step down because you're working with people over an extended period of time. You're aligned with a certain business or an organization. And then that all stopped. You know, within probably three or four days, my work for 12 months disappeared. Income, structure, validation, much like many people, right? And I'm not here to, you know, sing the the, um, the hymn book to say that everyone should feel sorry for me. But from a mental point of view, more so than a, you know, financial point of view, I was really, you know, you know st I was stuck. I didn't know what to do. And the first couple of weeks or probably the first month, I suppose, of COVID was quite confronting for me. You know, I was in a, uh, a house that was due to be renovated that we were talking before the podcast started. This is a 150-year-old house that was an absolute bombshell. And suddenly I was like, I'm going to have to spend the extended period of time in this place it's dark it's miserable there's, there's no backyard and i also don't have any work so one of the ways that i try to get around that is you know i need structure in my life and so i sat down in that dark dingy room uh, the second bedroom as it were at the time and i started to write i had no structure per se it was sort of like three big chunks probably about 80,000 words. And essentially it was an iteration of the story that I would tell verbally to people when I go out and do a keynote, for instance. And what I found was that it was just an, again, it was just an extension of that. It, there wasn't enough depth. And when I went through the confronting parts, I found that instead of following the sort of oral iteration of my quote unquote speech, where you kind of bounce from topic to topic as we're doing now, like when you talk verbally, you don't go into the depth of the emotion or the real sort of uh, feelings that you had at any one single singular time because you just don't have time. Like I could talk to you about a single week in my life when I was really struggling for hours because it was hours and hours of issues. So the thing that confronted me most in the first time was basically just being honest about how bad things had gotten. I, I'd spoken about it publicly, but I hadn't written it down. And when it's in your face and you can actually see the words, it's a bit, it's, it is quite confronting. And then the next sort of stage of the, the process of writing was we went to Alan and I when my publisher we pitched the idea we shared some of the work that I'd done and I basically said to them look this book is going to be what I want it to be I want to have full creative control if you want an expose and all of the all things football and you want to sell it as this big bombshell that 
tomboy, you know, outs the Bulldogs or, you know, criticizes the AFL, it's not going to happen. They're not the feelings that I have. It's not the story that I want to tell. Um, it's not the experience that I had. You know, I, I love the Bulldogs to this day. I, I love the AFL as a as a league that's been a vehicle for me to get to where I am today. And thankfully, they agreed. And they said, that's fine. Um, the only thing we want you to do is have a really strong editor. We're, I'm confident that you have the capabilities to write the book yourself. We just think you need a bit of help with structure or whatever. And I sat down with Simone, um, who coincidentally actually wrote Libby Trickett's book, um, which I would highly recommend called Beneath the Surface. And She's awesome, like one of the nicest people that I've ever met and was kind of a bit starstruck when I did her podcast, given that I sort of grew up in the Golden Girls era. Um, and we sat down and the first thing Simone said to me was really quite funny. She came in and she goes, she, I think she thought she was going to deal with this like super stuck up, arrogant footballer who was not going to listen to a word. She said, read what you've written. You've got to start all over again. And I'm like, great. And she's like, oh, I thought you were going to be like, you know, completely not open to feedback. And it took me a few sessions with her, one, to walk through what it actually happened because she wasn't a football fan but two to convince her over and over again that feedback is ingrained into my soul based on you know years and years of criticism and you know compliments at the afl level where the feedback loop is about 25 minutes not you know 12 months like it is in many industries and her biggest thing other than helping me with structure was pushing me and pushing me and pushing me to go tom how are you thinking and how are you feeling not what was happening anyone can tell you what was happening and you know if someone from the general football public came out and just said you know or, or was asked just write a book on Tom Boyd's career they could get probably 70% of it right you know they could tick off a lot of stuff they probably wouldn't know the background within the four walls of the footy club but much of it's been documented but how are you thinking how are you feeling during moments where things are really really difficult and I moved down to, to Anglesey to help you know support Anna's father at the time during COVID and, and we were sitting there and I remember sitting in the sort of again spare bedroom which I'd converted to an office and sometimes I'd just sit there for 20 minutes and just not write a single word because I had to almost regurgitate the feelings that I was having during very, very difficult periods of time in my life. And it absolutely sucked. But it's what I needed to do to get the content to be one, accurate, and two, it, again, enough depth to be like, this is the human experience that I had as a footballer and as a person, right? And as a young person trying to grow up in the spotlight. And so, you know, sometimes I would be in there for eight hours just writing. And I do 10, 12, 13,000 words because I didn't want to stop in the sense where I'd finish halfway through a chapter and it would almost be like the tone of who I was talking to or the way that I was talking would change. I wanted there to be sort of continuity. And, and you know, I'd walk out of that room stinky and <laughs> yeah. just absolutely mentally fried. But when I finished it, I was like, I felt like it was worthwhile. Like I, I felt like I would have benefited from reading this book when I was, you know, 17, 16, 18, 20, like whenever you sort of get to the point of your life where it feels like you need to make critical decisions based on your future. Because when I was going through the ranks of, say, the under 16s and 15s, if it went to be sort of being captain of the uh, the Victorian side at 15, 16, I didn't have any perception that anyone else had any doubt. And I was working my heart out about myself. And, you know, realistically, one of the things that I've spoken about quite uh, candidly is that I don't have any qualms about people criticizing me based on the fact that I went number one. I wanted to go number one. That's all I wanted. I wanted to be the best player in the country. You have to have that attitude to be the best player amongst the hundreds of thousands of kids around the country who actually want to succeed and get drafted every year. And if I'd known that other players were worried, if I'd known that, you know, the best of the best had that same sort of ingrained self doubt, criticism, imposter syndrome over the years, perhaps it would have given me, I think, more of a license to, to reach out and say, you know, I, people can understand what I'm going through. I may be unique. We're all unique. It's it's great. We're all individual humans with idiosyncrasies and challenges and successes and triumphs. But at the core of it, the human experience is, is relatively similar. And I think that really was the lesson that I was trying, or one that I had to learn, but two that I was trying to exhibit through the book. There's so much to, to unpack with that. And I think I want to go back to one of the things that you mentioned that that you mentioned before around what you were thinking and um, how you were feeling. Um, I could definitely see that come across in the book, especially, and I think I alluded to it before when you were, I think you, you specifically did that in sort of italic text to, to sort of to tell the audience that this is what you're thinking at the exact time. And I found that so relatable. Like one of the things that I really identified is the amount of attention and introspection that you would perform like on any kind of flippant comment, that tough comment that would be made by a teammate or a coach. And I think that for me, I really, really identified with that because I found countless times especially especially in a sort of a corporate set you're a young graduate you're kind of at the bottom of the food chain and if a, a manager sort of pub makes sort of 
of a passing comment, like, you know, or pass, gives work to someone else or, or makes a passing comment about your own work, it would pretty much ruin my entire week. I would just be thinking exactly like, well, you know, I, I want to improve on this. Like, what am I doing wrong? Am I going to get fired next week? This would be, this would be actual a whole feedback loop that would, be, that would just be going through my head. And it was actually very, very refreshing to, to sort of see that you also went through the same thing. So even though it's vastly different jobs in vastly different industries, the symptoms are exactly the same. Yeah, we're all the center of our own universes, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, we're all the most important people. The universe revolves around us. Like It's the exact same for everyone. I mean, one of the things that I've really, really worked hard on just as a mental tool is just to remember no one cares about it's, you, Tom. Yeah. Like no, one, yeah. no one's thinking yeah. about you. No one's going out and going, wonder what he's doing at the moment. Or how about that goal he missed on the weekend? But when you're in the football, like in the public eye, one of the things that I've said to a, a few people, and it, maybe it's a bit sort of poetic here, but you know, no matter what you think about yourself, if you hear negative comments a thousand times, 10,000 times, eventually those negative comments just begin to echo. And I think for me, that's really, it was the weight of the criticism and the inability that I had to avoid it that really started to just wear me down in terms of a chronic sort of issue that I was dealing with. But to your point, this this happens to everyone. And one of the, I suppose, the, the great challenges that you face in the corporate world is that your time with your manager, your time with your partner, and again, you know, through the work that I do at Everperform, we work a lot in the accounting industry. And the time that you get with those people is so short. Now, the one advantage that you have at the AFL level is that that passing comment is followed up with another passing comment and another and another and another. And to the original sort of statement I made about feedback being a part of my soul, that's the reason that it is. But the equivalent for us in terms of the story that you just told or the, the sort of experience that you had is that the head coach is not in contact with you all the time. And some of the comments that I received from Luke at different stages or Leon, because they're, such, they're people that we respect so much and they are so integral to the overall pathway of our career and our lives. The, the influence they can have, both for good and for bad, is so significant in such short doses and small doses. And I remember times where, you know, Bevo would say something to me that was positive and I, you couldn't get me off cloud nine for the next 10 days. But there were also times where he would question, you know, the motivations of me as a person, which is a technique that coaches use at different times to try and, you know, ignite a fire within you or ignite something within you that sparks you to be better than you were yesterday. And he would question, you know, he, he would get at the why I did something or the why that other players did something. And for me, that was almost debilitating in a way because in a football setting and on a football field, you don't want to think about the why. You want to just do you need to be instinctual, otherwise you'll fall behind. Your mind, as you know, uh, Lisa, my psychologist, would explain to me many, many times, is that the thinking mind or the part of your brain that is actually considering reason is so slow compared to your instinctual action-based part of your brain. And so I think just those two things were always difficult for me to contend with. And the other one that I think is really different probably to your experience, definitely different to your experience, is that you know I grew up as a person who you know was told by my mum probably a billion times that manners and kindness and the way you interact with people is the measure of a good person in particular it's the measure of a good man because you know she dealt with different guys over the years who hadn't treated her well mum came across from scandinavia um, when she was 23 and when she'd met dad overseas and so her perhaps her cultural experience over there in denmark was vastly different to the one here so she tried to instill the overall sense of kindness and and politeness and, and, and being being a good person. And I felt like all the way up until I turned 18 and I got drafted 10 days after my final sort of school exam, I felt like that held me in really good stead. It helped me interact with people. It helped me actually excel and, um, you know, continue to improve in my footballing career. The moment I got drafted, everything changed because that niceness, in a sense, was exploited. That kindness was not actually conducive to playing better football. and Regardless of how I behaved as a human, and I'm not saying I was perfect, I was, we're all far from perfect. Regardless of how I behave, professional, kind, friendly, do the right thing, say the right thing, be good in front of the media, be good in front of whatever. If I didn't get enough kicks, marks, handballs or goals on the weekend, my sense of self-worth was judged exactly on those two hours every single week. And for me, that was just this massive internal conflict that I dealt with over the course of my five and a half or so year career that I never really could shake. And in the end, it was really probably the core motivation that I had to go, 
I feel like I'm intellectually and personally stunted by the AFL in the sense that I can't push myself forward and utilize the gifts that I've been given in terms of my ability to articulate things or the ability for me to connect with people, to tell a story, um, to be a person and to help lead people in the setting of the AFL. And so I decided to go and sort of, you know, flex my intellectual muscles outside of the game. So well said. And I'm just sort of sitting, I know I haven't sort of asked too many questions in the last sort of 15 minutes. Because you didn't read the book, so you don't know what to ask. (laughs) Didn't prepare, mate. Didn't do the homework. (laughs) That's a very, that's, there's like, um, yeah, it's a very fake. I'll give you that one. Finally, he's on the roasting chair now. Not me. Yeah, mate. Don't make, I'm going to spin it your way soon. <laughs> like, Tom, just hearing you and like, I know I didn't sit on the conversation that you and Mank had back in October 2020 either, but obviously heard a lot about you from Mank. Heard a lot about you in the last two, three weeks as Mank's been reading this book. And obviously just generally have been hearing quite a bit just in what the media has been sharing and a lot about what you've been sharing on LinkedIn. And you come across as someone that's like incredibly, I've been writing notes here as you've been speaking, like reflective, very grounded. And as you speak, there's this sense of optimism that you have for what lies ahead. And sort of the question that comes to mind is a lot of people, and hopefully I word this right, but a lot of people go through their life not really knowing who they are. They never really take the time to introspect, reflect, and become true with their values and their character. And uh, the question that I have for you is that that stuff is hard. Like that shit takes time to process and unpack and, and, and delve into. And it's a really basic question that I have for you, but I think it has a lot of depth. But the question is like, why do you feel the need to constantly be better you know, constantly do the work and reflect and and be the best that you can be. Because I think all of us want to be the best that we can be, but taking that time to reflect and introspect takes time and and is incredibly difficult as well. Yeah, it can be. I mean, I think one of the things that COVID granted me that I otherwise wouldn't have had is just time, right? Like it just gave me time to reflect and, you know, uh, introspection is hard. Looking back at your life and going, when did I, you know, do good, bad or indifferent is not fun. It's And it is something that is really quite challenging. But I will tell you the two things that I think that have worked very, very well for me. One, fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. It's a colloquial throwaway line that is 100%, at least in my experience, exactly what everyone else in the world is doing. Yeah. If you look, I've sat in, very, you know, quite recently in the last 12 months, I've sat in boardrooms of companies that, you know, have $75 million worth of turnover. They employ 250 staff. I've sat in their C-suite executive meetings, listening to their people strategy and how they're going to improve their business. Mate, these people got no idea what they're talking about. They're all trying to figure it out. I, I, I'm hundred percent with successful. you. Welcome not, to our I'm world. Not, I'm not saying I'm not saying they're not great at what they do. I'm saying they're still trying to yeah. figure it out. And if those people are, and I am, everyone is. So mm. be the person or project the person that you want to be. And if you don't, if you fall short, that's fine. Do it again. One of the the the, the respect that the, the the introspective or the reflective part of that conversation. So you the the fake it till you make a bit is project yourself to be where you want to be in 12 months, whatever it is. I want to be, you know, someone who represents this, doing what you guys do. You know, I want to be an influence in the mental health space i want to advocate for it i think particularly in professional services there's a need there's a desire the last two years you've built something that's you know quite impressive and quite unique right you couldn't have done that unless you thought you had something before you did the reflective part is also to be able to sit there and quite honestly go i was such an idiot 12 months ago and i mean that so genuinely is that every 12 months i look part like i think back to the interview we did sort of 18 months ago almost two years now i had no idea what i was doing I was trying to build a business based on, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. I had no idea. I was trying to build a business based on the fact that I just left the AFL game. I played AFL football since I was six years old. All I ever wanted to do was get drafted. I did that. All I ever wanted to do was win a premiership. I did that. All I ever wanted to do was be a successful AFL player. I fell short of where I probably thought that I could have got to, but I fell short based on the fact that one, you know, I certainly had challenges, both physical and mental. And I also realized that the passion that I thought that I had to play AFL at the top level wasn't there or wasn't where mm-hmm. I thought it once was. So what am I going to do now? I can't not work. You know, I don't, I didn't make that much money. The tax man had a really, really mm-hmm. good chunk of the income that I had. I did really well. I had a massive contract. I'm in a far better financial position than, you know, any of my friends who went through university and school. But at the same time, I am, 
you know, seven years behind all of my friends who went to university, traveled, finished their degree, started their, you know, whether they're working at a big four, they're working in legal or whatever industry they're in to pick up a trade. Those people are four years, five, six years ahead of where I would have been if I had started university and not played footy. And that is a reality that every single footballer faces at some stage and every single athlete, because there is no way that you can play professional sport without sacrificing the rest of your life, you know, and that's weddings, that's, that's funerals at different stages. That's, you know, birthdays and parties and, and, you know, education and, you know, experiences and travel. You just don't get the same experience. It's not to say it's worse. It's a wonderful career. It's a wonderful job. But you have to be able to be frank with yourself. And, you know, one of the things that I feel like I've been good at in my life is knowing when to turn the page and move on to the next chapter which is really, really cringy and corny given that I wrote a book. And, you know, anyway, we'll yeah, chapter won't, author, won't we get it. Much about yeah, that. chapter author, we get it. But, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, the self-promotion is horrible. I really should stop. Um, but seriously, it's, it's, it is about at some stages, and I, and I think that, you know, yeah, the, the two of you have spoken to me about, you know, that there is a, a chapter that you would like to explore, right? And at some stage, in our lives, we all need to do that. You know, you, you know, you've changed jobs, Sonny. Um, you're on, you know, your own leave of absence at the moment. These are things that, you know, it's yeah, sabbatical. Great. Like we, we need to make decisions based on what's the best, you know, long-term decisions for our future. And too many people, and particularly in professional services, and particularly in legal, don't and don't feel that they're capable of doing that. And you know, the results are. They, they, it's a textbook that's as old as time. It's, you know, work your ass off until you get to manage, work your ass until you get to director or partner, and then you get to partner and you've got the kids and the wife, and then you work at 95 hours a week and you get divorced. And then you go, oh, it's all, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. You're 40 and you start again. And this story happens everywhere. And it's a story that I didn't want to follow. And although I had, you know, extreme highs playing football, if I look back in 25 years' time and I go, the peak of my life, the number one thing that I remember and I'm proud of is winning a premiership as a 21-year-old, then I failed. Because life is long, hopefully, for most of us. And football is short. And I didn't want to feel like that, yeah, I could you know, stand there and do a sportsman's night in 25 years and just keep talking about the glory days where I kicked the goal from outside 60. That's just not who I want to be. And I think for me, just being able to reflect and also project is is something that I think I've done pretty well and, and something I certainly am looking forward to doing in the future. Yeah, very, very well said. Talking about pages and chapters, I know I haven't been doing too much of that. Uh, <laughs> one thing one thing I do know about your book, Tom, is uh, it's, called, it's, it's called Nowhere to Hide. There yeah, we go. That's it. That's it. <laughs> one of one. This, this is the first advance. This is the only copy that I yeah. still have. Ooh. This is the, the first time I got it. And uh, it was received on the 28th of the 6th, 2022, about six weeks before yeah. it got released. Oh, so beautiful. That's the only reason I have it, I promise. <laughs> I don't have like collections. I don't have, there's no bookshelf hiding up the screen. Yeah. Like, just, well, everyone goes, Geez, it's a nice cover. And I said, mate, you wouldn't believe what makeup and Photoshop can do for you. It's, it's incredible. We should all experience it at some stage. <laughs> <laughs> the the look the easy thing about your book so far has been reading the title and it it raises an eyebrow for me it's uh nowhere to hide and i wanted to ask where did that name come from did you feel that you were hiding from something you know this whole time so sunny i have a very pragmatic relationship with my publisher yeah it was i'm the, i'm gonna write it you're gonna edit it you're gonna copy edit it and then when they came asking for chapter titles and titles, I said, I don't have a creative bone in my body. I'm not, this is not who I am. I can do the content. I can write the story, but <laughs> your job. So they came to me with nowhere to hide. And I was like, that's actually, yeah, I, I felt like it was, it was really apt. And look, I'm not, again, I'm certainly not looking for sympathy or empathy. I've had a, a really good life. And I'm very, very proud of the things that I've been able to achieve. And they're the friends and all of them. All that. I'm very grateful. I've got quite a sense of gratitude about my AFL career. But there may very well, at least at the stage of my life, there very well may never have been a an 18 year old who's been under more scrutiny in the Australian rules football uh, ecosystem. Now, potentially, maybe for you know, I don't know, maybe there was other people in Australia that were, but at least in my experience, I've never seen the vitriol that was sort of directed at me as a 18 year old 
who signed, you know, a seven-year, seven million dollar contract, and just the ability, I suppose, of the media to forget who I, you know, who I was. And, and again, I'm not angry at these people. You know, negativity sells, unfortunately. But there was a very sort of interesting sort of few stages of my experience with the media that I think really gets at the point why. You know, the, the, the title is nowhere to hide. You know, part of it is really about becoming a young man growing up in the spotlight. And the three stages that I saw in my career uh, were, you know, as a 17-year-old kid, selling criticism of 17-year-olds, very difficult to do because you're still a child. And so my experience over the course of my final year, in particular before the draft, was I probably had the, the best possible five or six games before I got injured that you could imagine. You know, I came, I think I came second in the league BNF after five games. And I was equal with the three leaders who would end up winning with one game to go. So, you know, I played 12 less games than some of these guys and I still managed to get 13 votes out of possible 15 or something like that. And I may be slightly wrong, but you get the point. You know, I was averaging five goals a game. Like I was, I was dominating. I was having the best possible start. I'd set myself for this for the, you know, the three years basically since I played it and, and was quite disappointed in my overall experiences as the captain in the under-16s National Carnival set myself to play well and I did exactly that. Then I got injured and I really, really badly hurt my ankle, ruptured basically every lateral ligament, couldn't play until the last game of the year where I played in the, the uh, TAC, TAC Cup Premiership where we beat Danny Nong by 20 goals. And over the course of that time, the, the, the story the media told was that, you know, I went from being a potential number one pick in the preseason. After the first five games, he's a guaranteed number one pick. Then whilst I was injured, he's like, is he, you know, is he the best forward of the last five years? Then is he the best number one pick we've ever had? Now, I wasn't playing, so who could prove them wrong? And the other thing that because I had time and because I was still at, you know, I was still in the AIS, I was still at the National Carnival, I still went to the combine, though I didn't do any of the, uh, the testing. Um, I had time to speak to these people. And they did a lot of character, like sort of profiling. They did a lot of deep diving as to who I am and the positive things. And oh, he's well-spoken. He's come from a good family. He's doing really well at school. And I was a perfect person in the eyes of the football media at 18. Then it changed, but drafted. And within sort of weeks, probably a couple of months, more realistically, there was questions about, geez, he's, he's heavy. He's put on a lot of weight. You know, is he too slow or too heavy? I've been, I, I went from, getting drafted at 102 kilos. I put on five kilos of muscle in the first three weeks or four weeks of training. They put me on the same program that every other young draftee was, and I was smashing gym. I was as strong as I'd ever been, probably as strong as I almost ever was playing AFL football. And I went awesome in preseason until we started playing practice matches, and then I was too slow, and I couldn't find the ball. So then I started playing in the reserves, and it was like, oh, what's yeah? why is he in the reserves? Why is he not playing? You know, is there issues? And there was leaks about the fact that I was listening to my dad too much or some other rubbish or that he's too heavy. And then it was like this insidious, like genuine questioning of my motivations as a person. And I was like, what is this about? Like, and the other thing was I was still in Sydney. So I thought it was bad. Then I get traded on, again, the second biggest deal in AFL history at that stage, uh, just behind buddies who had sort of signed the year before. And one of the first questions I get asked when I come back, I do this sort of kiss the baby thing and we're in South North Primary School doing a clinic and, you know, it's a sunny day and yada, yada, Tom's a good guy. He's at the football club. We're really excited about the future. The second or third question that I got asked in this in this presser was something like, um, you know, what do you think this means for, for player free agency and the, the trade sort of landscape of the AFL? And I was like, well, I'm 19. I've played like nine games. I don't really think a lot about this yeah. stuff, right? Like, so I saw a lot of zeros. <laughs> and I was like, back to Melbourne. I was like, sign me up. Let's go. <laughs> like, I think that, you know, it's it's a small question. It's one, to, to the previous conversation, it's one throwaway line. It's one comment. But it's a comment that really began to illustrate that the way that people perceived me. I wasn't 19 anymore. I was a seven-year, $7 million player. The year before, I, I wasn't an 18-year-old. I was a number one draft pick. And slowly but surely, based on the sort of circumstances I found myself in, I found myself basically in the in the in the midst of a highly critical landscape of people who were expecting me to basically be Tom Hawkins or Wayne Carey or whatever at the age of 20. And unfortunately that wasn't the case. And that wasn't something that I felt that I, you know, 
lived up to at that stage and I played some good footy at different stages but really struggled to actually reconcile the fact that I was still a person regardless of what these people were writing and saying about me all the time and look there were plenty of people who defended me as well I'm not here again to to ask for sympathy or empathy but to the question about the nowhere to hide piece I couldn't hide in my local supermarket I couldn't hide down the street I couldn't hide at a restaurant I couldn't hide at a bar I couldn't hide at training or or on a footy field really the only place that I felt like I was safe was at home and that in a sense was one of the really key drivers to me basically isolating myself and withdrawing from social situations and getting extraordinary social anxiety and yada and the experience just snowballed and snowballed until the point where basically as you know is well documented I basically hadn't slept in six weeks and felt like you know the world was about to end so um, that's where the nowhere to hide thing uh, comes from. And I think, you know, from a, you know, a, an overall commentary sense, and a lot of people feel like they're, in, uh, you know, under the public eye or under a lot of scrutiny at work. or And, and all of this, whilst it's unique to, my, to my, me and my story, it is still something that, again, we all experience as people when we're trying to sort of improve and, and climb up the corporate ladder or whatever we may be doing. Is that we do feel like we're getting scrutinised quite significantly. And, you know, little things do make such a big difference in the way mm. that we perceive our world. Mm, 100%. Yeah. There's a certain level of, I guess, expectation and, and I guess commentary mm. that comes with that, that that level of notoriety. I think I think you even alluded to this very, like very early on in your book as well, especially when you were in sort of high school where you had to deal with that kind of expectation and you were sort of caught between kind of two different, I guess, like char- characters, I guess. I guess like the first one, I guess like the first kind of character being like that normal high school kid but you also wanted to be that kind of superstar full forward but you but you didn't want to have that kind of notoriety and that kind of spotlight on you at that at that stage in high school you kind of also wanted to be that normal kid and i know it's kind of a bit of a weird question given that what you're trying to battle throughout your entire afl career but how, what are some of the strategies and what are some of the tactics that you kind of used sort of looking back in hindsight as to sort of balance those two things trying to be the best you know, having that ego, like trying to be the best, trying to be number one, but also trying to retain as much of a normality in your life as possible? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. It's something that I did uh, battle with. And I think it's something that I really didn't do well uh, in my AFL career, but actually kind of nailed, to be honest, as, a, as an 18-year-old. And, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to get away from was, like, when, you, when you're 17 and you're going through your draft year and people are coming up to you and, you know, taking photos and, you know, asking questions and trying to get your opinion on other players. Well, that's, it's like it's part of the experience as a draftee and it's something that's really exciting. But one thing that is very, very challenging for people in the public eye is that there's always the interactions that you have with the public is that you don't know them from a bar of soap. You have no insight into their intentions or who they are and yet they're coming up to you and they feel like this experience for them is the most important thing that they're going to do for the day the week the month depending on how you know sort of big and famous you are and I certainly wasn't as famous as others but it's a very difficult thing to do because when people are coming up to you and they're basically asking you to give something of yourself when you're 17 and you don't know them it's it's just like it's a it's a mental thing that you know, I had to experience from a really young age that I didn't quite understand. And I, what I wrote about in the book and one of the things that I felt like I did really well and what really held me in good stead, both when I was 17, sort of going through the draft period and actually held me in pretty good stead sort of through 2018 and 19 is that I actually turned to my schooling as the sort of outlet to football. For a long time, football had been the fun, free living carefree experience that we all have for sport like we all wait for school to end so we can go off and play with play footy or soccer or tennis or whatever with our mates over a period of time that actually reversed for me and I felt like that you know my school friends they were interested in my career but they were around me every single day so they weren't going oh geez what happened yesterday or what happened last week they knew and they were they were in constant conversations the other thing was that whilst football is probably a little bit more ambiguous Schooling is, in some sense, is a bit of a meritocracy in that if you don't get good grades, you don't get good grades. And I was hanging around guys that, yeah, the, the guys who, who wanted to do really well. And, you know, I sort of got around the mid-90s in my ATAR and I was sort of striving towards, um, you know, beating some of my mates. And, you know, that's the relationship that we had. We played down ball at lunchtime. We tried to beat each other in our sacks and tried to beat each other in our exams. Like, that's all we wanted to do. And I felt more normal there than I felt, you know, in the public sort of eye, even though I knew that, you know, change in my life was was coming uh, quick and fast. And I remember 
again, to the reference about turning the page, is that I remember people talking in year 12 and I absolutely loved year 12. I thought it was a, just an awesome experience for me. And I know some people don't have the same uh, memories, but I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And I remember talking to a few of my mates and they're like, we're all going to be friends next year and can't wait to you know, go to uni together. And I'm like, none of you are going to talk to each other. Like, or at least I'm not. Like, I knew I was moving into state. I knew my life was going to change so drastically that trying to stay connected with people who were going through their first year of university, whilst I was playing in front of, well, probably only about 650 people because I was playing at the Giants at the time, but you get the point. It was going to, it was going to be, it was going to be really difficult to connect because I was going to my my maturity levels were going to have to accelerate so quickly, and theirs was going to accelerate at the proportional level to the rest of society. And I think for me, just understanding that you know I was trying to relish every single moment and get the right balance between you know school, friends, and my football, which was really almost my job at this stage, was what I did particularly well. And when I was got to the point in 2017 where sort of I had to reset my life and do a really sort of, you know, big reconciliation of where I was at. The first thing I realized was that I was doing the exact opposite then as what I'd been doing previously. You know, I'd withdrawn from all of my friends. I was really struggling to connect with people. I was socially anxious. I was spending a lot of time at home. And the only thing that I was pouring any of my attention, time or energy into was football. Because I felt like if I could get the outcome on the field, everything would follow and fall into place afterwards. And that's the way that we are all, most of us approach our lives. We go, if we can just get work right, I can get that promotion, earn a bit more money, win that job, earn that client, whatever, get the outcome. Everything is going to change. It doesn't work that way. It works the opposite way. You need to get your own shop in order first. And then generally speaking, the outcomes come afterwards. And look, that's not something I've done perfectly in my life. It's not something I've done perfectly in the last six months, you know, uh, particularly since becoming a parent, life becomes drastically different and trying to prioritise everything and juggle all the different plates that you have is is quite hard. So um, I think for me, that's really the crux of where I found myself and, and why I felt like I probably lost my way in the overall sense of what actually is important to have in my life and how to balance the, the different components. You know, one last question for you, but you're, you're now a father to a newborn and lovely Armani that's been welcomed into the world. We've had a couple of fathers that have come on actually as well and, and some others that have come on and um, they're anticipating a newborn. And it's a question we've asked because I guess like now as Mank and I navigate our 20s, uh, a lot of the people around us are now having babies and, and sort of settling down and, and things like that. But uh, we'd really love to hear from you, like what does this next chapter of sort of fatherhood look like for you and, and what are you looking forward to as you navigate that for yourself? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things to uh to to learn that I felt like I did well and then there's some some others perhaps that I didn't do that well first and foremost is any of these blokes who go you know if you are expecting or expecting at some point to come up to you and go your life's over and all this tell them blatantly to get stuff because it's such a terrible thing to tell to an impending father and look I'm but say you know probably more in the, the the strong personality type. So I'm comfortable standing up for myself and basically saying that you've got no idea what you're talking about and whatever you're telling me is not going to be positive. So keep your mouth shut. But many people aren't. The good piece of advice I think that I got from one of my best mates who's in sort of my bridal party um, and, and I've known basically since I was born was whatever's going on, good, bad or indifferent, everything's going to change in a week. So hold on to that because it can be bloody hard at times, like especially with the sleep issues and, you know, the... We were really lucky. We probably had four months of bliss where she really, well, actually the first few weeks are really, really hard, particularly on, on Anna. And then the next sort of three months, we got really lucky and she was a fantastic sleeper. And the last sort of five weeks, she's been all over the map. So things have sort of changed again, but it's always going to change in a week. And their ability to have, you know, dexterity in their hands and smile and show emotion and all of that sort of stuff is it, it changes so, so quickly. But the other thing is that, you know, what I found to be a bit of a fallacy is that your life's going to change forever when they're born. And look, it, it does. It does change, but not to the degree that it changes when they're six months old or when they're 12 months or two years. When, when the sort of balance of responsibility moves from the mother to the father it, it does change over the course of time, especially when they're breastfeeding. And I think that was eye-opening for me. I thought sort of, 
you know, all of a sudden, like I was going to have to spend 24 hours a day looking after this child. And that really hasn't been the case. My job basically in, in its most quintessential form is to support Anna and support Anna as, as best as I can. And I've tried my best um, to be able to do that. And that means keeping the house in order, looking after our dog, cleaning, all of that sort of stuff, cooking. But the other thing is, is that it does change your perspective as to, I suppose, you know, as, as guys, at least in my experience, we think very sort of short term and I find that you know at least in my own mind my uh, my output is highest when I'm juggling a few different things which is why I sort of work three or four different jobs because I like bouncing from things and I get energy from change that's the opposite of being a father the being a father is just just grinding and just staying sort of patient and trying to learn the ability just to tolerate the fact that this little bundle of joy is not going to do what you want it to do just about ever until they're a bit older and perhaps they listen to you. But the final thing I'll say is that the it is mind-blowing how incredible the female body is in terms of taking care of a newborn, bouncing back from birth. Like it's it's amazing. And for me, you know, particularly with Anna, um, if I was being vulnerable now, it would be that, you know, I, I've loved Anna for a long time. Um, you know, we've been dating for, you know, six, seven years or something like that. Been engaged for three, almost three and a half because COVID's, you know, COVID uh, pregnancy kicked marriages down the road. But I've never seen um, the side of her that I've seen in the last six months. And it is just, yeah, just an incredible thing to uh, to experience and something that I'm so thankful for. But it also is, yeah, it's an interesting challenge and one that's changing every single day. And if I do have some bags under my eyes, it's basically because, you know, she has her moments and yeah, life, uh, life throws a few curveballs at you. But yeah, I'm excited as she grows, as she matures, as she becomes a more interactive human. All of those things are exciting. And I'm just trying to enjoy each stage without wishing them away. Um, to get to the point where I get to take it to the park and kick a footy or whatever it may be. Yeah, just a quick comment there. There's a, I know we, I know we're going to wrap up, but I had um, someone that we came, someone that came on one of uh, our episodes, Jason Blewett, uh, Mank, because uh, a lot of people ask like, you know, what are your favorite moments of fatherhood? And you know, his reply to that is now, like right now, is is the best moment because that's that's all you have. And it has to be. It has to be right now. Like it it can't be can't be in the future. It can't be in the past. It has to be now. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. No, uh, thank you, Tom. And obviously, we're very, very conscious of your own time. And I, I think one, one of the, again, one of the philosophies that Sonny and I have is when people come on, come onto our platform and donate their own time, they're creating a positive change in the world. Um, and that's a value that that's come out in this podcast with yourself, sharing your story and sharing your content. It's again, it's an absolute privilege to have you on again. Just before we let you go, though, I just had one other comment as well. One of the lines that really stuck out to me, and I'm not just trying to show you that I've read the book, but like, I just wanted to just, just one more thing about the book. It was in the epilogue and the first line of the epilogue, it said, you, you literally said the words, it says, my AFL football career was was a disappointment. I just wanted to say that from an outsider looking in, this is this just comes, and it was interesting, was this line came after right, right after a moment where you described an old lady that had approached you at a cafe and said that you changed her life and she can now die happy that you and she thanked you for winning the 2016 premiership i think it's those moments um, when you sort of look back at those moments and from a from an outsider looking in obviously i wouldn't have said your, your your story but from someone uh, an outsider looking in and looking at your life as a snapshot i i think it's and obviously looking at your your airport career I, I do think it was a success at least from my eyes i'm not too sure it I'm not sure how much my, my opinion's worth, um, but you know, I just wanted to let you know that I don't think it was a dis- I don't think it was a disappointment. Well, I appreciate it. And now I know that you just for the epilogue so that you could pretend <laughs> like you read the book. But exactly. also, also the next line is a very important part of the context of that statement. And, and you know, look, I you know, I'm very thankful for my career. I think there were some wonderful moments. But the reason why it was a disappointment was again because it wasn't what I thought it was going to be in terms of the experience that I had as a person, not so much on the field. And um, yeah, I'm your opinions worth just as much as anyone else's so i appreciate you you all having me i am now um i will have to go but thank thanks you, so much for your time and uh, i really appreciate it thank you tommy thank you mate not too much else from my end but i'll kick it off this is sunny signing off this is mank signing off and that's a wrap for this episode if you're enjoying our conversations please help us out with a quick rate and review on spotify and apple podcasts all the conversations are recorded in video so check us out on instagram and facebook at our handle at bottled up oz Drop us a comment or a message if any of these conversations resonate with you. And most importantly, please share this podcast with anyone who might need it. So as always, this is Bottled Up. Thanks for being part of our family and see you next time.